21 tonight, Luke chapter 21, as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke. So in the next couple of weeks, as we wrap up the Gospel of Luke, really going to prepare us for the Easter season. We're coming into the last week of Jesus' life. We're going to be looking at his death, burial, and resurrection over the next couple of weeks as well. So invite you out on Tuesday night. These next four Tuesdays, I think, are really going to be good preparation for us. Tonight we want to begin, though, in the first four verses of Luke 21. And I want to take this a little bit separately because the rest of the chapter sort of deals with Jesus' prophetic teaching. And I want to get into that tonight. But there's some really important points and principles. And by the way, before I forget, obviously we have notes again for this week. But because we forgot to bring the notes for last week, if you want to pick up a set of those notes, they are over there on that table or that round thing with the pillar there. That's where they are from last week. So notice here, I'm just going to read, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. By the way, having an offering box box is biblical. (laughs) Notice, they weren't passing plates in Jesus' day, they were putting their offerings in an offering box. All right. Thought I'd just bring that up. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper, literally, uh, brass is really what they were, coins. They were worth about one-fifth of a penny is what they were worth. He said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all offered their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had to live on. You'll notice there are a couple things in the notes. First of all, minimal gifts can be underappreciated. Notice Jesus doesn't underappreciate minimal or small gifts. Nothing is too small from God's perspective. And many times as Christians, we fall into the trap of if we can't do something big, whether it's in giving or serving or ministering or anything, if I can't do something big, if I can't solve the whole problem, I won't do anything. And that's simply not biblical. God wants us to give and to do what we can, and He'll take care of the rest. He, like He did with the small boy's lunch, will multiply what we give Him and what we place in His hands, and He'll make greater use out of it than we ever could. He's not asking us to give what we don't have. He's simply asking us to place into His hands what we do have. And don't be discouraged at maybe what little you can somehow give. Whether it's material, whether it's in service, whether it's whatever ability or talent, you may think that you're minimizing. God never minimizes it. He never underappreciates it, just as He did this poor widow. He, the Lord of glory, is the one who saw this poor widow put those copper coins in the offering box. Also, I put there, God measures gifts differently than men. Obviously, men would have thought that all these uh, wealthy folks who put in a whole lot in the offering box, that was more important than 
what the widow could put in, her small little pittance. But notice again what Jesus says in verse 3, I tell you the truth, what is firm and faithful, she's put in more. And the word more there, there means greater in quality, it means superior, it means more excellent. You could go on and on. Jesus is saying that her gift actually from God's perspective measures out more. Because from God's perspective, it's not how much we give in any situation, whether you're talking about material giving or serving or ministering or anything. It's how much we have left after we give. It's how much it cost us. It's how much we sacrificed. That's the measure of giving as Christ gives. That's why I put there again, small gifts can come at a great cost. This was a small gift, but it it was everything she had. She gave it everything. And notice, the rich, they gave out of their wealth. Very interestingly, in verse 4, that in the Greek means the leftovers. (laughs) In other words, they took care of themselves and made sure all their needs were met. And then when it came to putting something in the offering box, they gave God what was left over. Not the widow. The widow didn't give what was left over. The widow gave what she had. She gave it all. She was all in for God. And it reminds us that it's, again, it, to encourage all of us, it's not necessarily always the big things that we wait around for to do or to give or whatever that it's don't minimize anything that you do for God. Nothing for God should ever be minimized. Nothing. Jesus even gave example after example throughout his teaching. If you give a cup of cold water in my name, So this is Jesus' perspective on gifts. Then we come to verse 5. Before we dive into this prophetic teaching of Jesus that can cause great confusion, I want to point this out. In Jesus' day, when Jesus as well as other prophets would teach on things to come, most often they would weave truth together so that it all sort of was entangled together. In other words, as you'll note here, the the teaching that Jesus gives on Jerusalem's fall to come in 70 AD and the events surrounding his second coming aren't all neatly separated out in this passage. It usually never is in the prophecies of Scripture It usually never is in the teachings of Jesus. And this causes great confusion for people. Because they begin to think that all this stuff then is happening at the same time just because it's taught in the same context or in the same passage. But that's not the way it was taught. That's not the way it was laid out. And the reason Jesus and other prophets did it that way is because God wants us to see that what happens in one instance is really mirrored or a pattern for what happens later. For instance, in the Bible, almost every deliverance that happens after the Exodus in the book of Exodus with Moses 
can somehow be mirrored and patterned back to that deliverance. So when God is teaching on coming judgment, there's always mirrors and patterns within other judgments of how that can be woven together, if you will. I hope I'm not confusing you now. I'm just going to move on. So, in this passage, Jesus is predicting Jerusalem's fall, but he's also prophesying about his second coming. And again, I'll say it again when we get there. Let's remember, as I said on Sunday, that the second coming of Jesus Christ is different from the rapture. If you're looking at a prophetic calendar, the next thing to happen on God's calendar is the rapture of the church. After the rapture of the church is the seven-year tribulation. At the end of the seven-year tribulation is the battle of Armageddon. And at the end of the battle of Armageddon is the second coming of Christ. And one of the main things, as we saw Sunday when we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, the main, one of the main differences between the rapture and the second coming is in the rapture, Jesus Christ never comes to earth. He never sets foot on earth. He meets us in the air and takes us, His church, His people, back to heaven. When he comes in the second coming, he literally will set foot on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, the Bible says, will split in two and he will set up his earthly kingdom for a thousand years at that time. That's the difference between the second coming and the rapture. So what we have here is a passage primarily then to the Jew. The Jews are going to be interested in this destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. And the Jew is going to be the one that primarily God is working with and working through during the seven-year tribulation. We're not going to be here. So many of you are sitting there going, then why are we even, why are we even talking about this? Because in principle, though this may technically, specifically not apply to us, there are many principles that we can apply to our lives living in the day and age in which we live today. For instance, notice verse 5. Now, while some were speaking about the temple, and the temple in Jerusalem was just unbelievable, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you are gazing at, you are mesmerized by, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another. All will be torn down. You and I as Gentiles living in 2013 cannot appreciate the force that those words from Jesus, how they would have hit his followers and any Jew that would have been present. I mean, the temple was everything. The temple was where God dwelled. The temple was where God's people went to worship Him. And you're telling us, Jesus, that somehow, some way, this temple with these magnificent stones, some of these stones were literally 40 feet high, 7 feet wide, 3 feet thick. They were unbelievable stones. And, and I mean, it just covered Jerusalem. It was like a snow-capped mountain in Jerusalem. That's what the temple looked like. And for Jesus to say that there's coming a day where it's not even going to exist anymore just totally would have rocked their world. And it reminds us, as I put there in the notes, humanity suffers from delusions of immortality. 
that we're going to be around forever, that, that these structures that we you know, sometimes get caught up in are going to be around forever. And, and especially to the Jew, it's like, but that's God's house. And what Jesus here is, is, is going to begin to show people is that, no, no, God's house now is you. You're God's house. That's the teaching of the New Testament. God doesn't dwell in buildings made with hands anymore. God dwells in His people. You and I are God's temple. We are God's house. And that's why our emphasis should never be on buildings and structures. They will come and go. They will crumble. They will will wear out. But you and I are the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit dwells in us now. Not in some building or sanctuary or auditorium. The destruction of A.D. 70 is distinct, but related to the end when Jesus comes back. Notice he says, so they ask him, teacher, they were very interested in this. When will these things happen? In other words, when is the temple and all of this going to be torn down? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? So he says, watch out. The word watch out here means to be discerning, to be perceptive, to weigh carefully. Again, something you and I can apply to our lives even in the day and age in which we live. Jesus is saying to his followers, be careful. Be discerning. How are you and I to grow in discernment? If I was to ask you as a Christian, how does the Bible teach us we grow in discernment? Could you answer that question? Growing in discernment comes from applying the Word of God to our lives on a daily basis. That's how we grow in discernment. And he says, watch out that you are not misled. That you are not led away from the truth into error. Again, we could apply that to our lives. So many today, even within the church, even those who are Christians, are being led away from the true truth into error. And Jesus is saying to all, be discerning people. Be perceptive. Weigh carefully what you are hearing and what you are listening to. For then he goes on to say, many will come in my name saying, I am he. I'm the Messiah. The time is near. Do not follow them, Jesus says. And when you hear of wars and rebellions, do not be afraid or terrified, for these things must happen first, but the end will not come at once. Notice I put there in the notes, one of the signs in Jesus' day before even the fall of Jerusalem was that spiritual deception will be rampant. And folks, that is true today. As the Bible predicts, there will be many false prophets and false teachers out there. And they will continue to grow as we get closer to the return of Christ. God's people are to be responsible to persevere amidst whatever persecution and pain we are to go through. He says in verse 10, Nation will rise up in arms against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you, handing you over to the synagogues and prisons. Now he goes from talking a little bit about, again, the end time return in verse 10 and 11, now back to the destruction of Jerusalem. You will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. 
This will be a time for you to serve as witnesses. Notice that. Jesus is telling and preparing his followers. When times get tough on earth, just as they did before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Roman Emperor Titus, when, when persecution is at its height, when the pain of living is intense, that's the best time to promote the reality of God in your life. That's the time for witnessing. That's the time to give testimony. The time to give great witness and testimony isn't when everything's going well in the world and everything's going well in our lives. The time to really have a powerful testimony is when we can maintain a joy and a peace and all of that in the midst of all this stuff that's going on in the world, just as it was true before the destruction of Jerusalem. Therefore, Jesus says, verse 14, be resolved. The word means to be fixed, to be established, not to rehearse ahead of time how you make your defense. I will give you the words along with the wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And Jesus saying before the destruction of Jerusalem, it's going to get so bad because people from your own family are even going to turn against you for my name. He says, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, friends. They will have some of you even put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, yet not a hair of your head will perish. He's not saying they won't die, obviously, or that they won't suffer. Because it's obvious that many were martyred and died because of their faith in Christ before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. This phrase is talking about the fact that Jesus is saying, nothing ultimately, though, is going to hurt you. The worst that they can do to you is kill the body, as he says in Luke chapter 11. They can't touch your soul. They can't touch your spirit. They can't touch who you really are. You and I are okay. Just like Stephen, and they stone Stephen. Ultimately, you know what your future is. They can't touch that. And so Jesus says, by your endurance you will really gain your lives. In other words, you will really begin to know what real life is all about. This word endurance is a word I, that I talk about a lot. It's the Greek word hupomone. It means one who has not swerved from one's purpose even in the face of great difficulty. That's what it means to endure. That you know what your purpose and what you're calling and what you are to be about for God and you are not going to let anyone or anything, no matter the circumstances, no matter what's going on in the world, no matter how bad it gets, you're not going to let anyone or anything swerve you from that purpose. No matter how intense the pain, no matter how crushing the pressure, that's the kind of endurance that God wants to build into each of His followers' lives. That's why it's so important that we continue to grow spiritually and get stronger. It's the only way we will endure. As Jesus called on his followers to endure what was coming before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Jesus would say the same thing to you and I. The times are going to get pretty bad before the rapture. And so here's what you and I need to do. We need to watch out. We need to be discerning and perceptive. We cannot be misled from truth into error. We've got to maintain that discernment. And we've got to be strong and we've got to endure. And we've got to be willing instead of being, in a sense, crushed by all the things that are going on in the world. We've got to realize that the condition of the world provides us as Christians, just as it did Jews in Jesus' day, a great opportunity to witness and give our testimony. 
Instead of shrinking under the circumstances of life, Jesus is calling his followers to rise above it. That's why I put there, God calls his people to remain steadfast because he is in control. Notice the Jewish nation's faith, though, is clearly tied to its rejection of Jesus. In verse 20, he gets really specific. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. In other words, don't flee into Jerusalem, which is the natural thing, thinking, well, Jerusalem is the the city of God. It's the place of refuge. Jesus says, you won't want to be in Jerusalem. That's the least safe place. You want to get out of Jerusalem. Those who are inside the city must depart. Those who are out in the country must not enter it. Because these are days of vengeance, or literally God's vindication to fulfill all that is written. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing their babies in those days. In other words, the most vulnerable, it's going to be even harder on them. It's not going to be a good time to be around Jerusalem come 70 AD when Titus and the Roman army march into Jerusalem, he says. For there will be great distress on the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away as captives among all nations. That's exactly what happened. Conservative estimates are that Titus and the Roman army killed a million Jews. And the rest of the Jews that were not killed by the Roman army scattered throughout all the countries of the world. It was only in 1947 when Israel became a country once again that Jews from all over the nations began to reassemble once again in their own homeland. But Jesus says, Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's why I put there in the notes, Israel's fall is not the end of God's plan. It only opened up the opportunity for Gentiles and for the church to be established beginning in the book of Acts. And the time of the Gentiles has not yet been fulfilled. That will happen at the rapture of the church. At the rapture, the time of the Gentiles then will be complete and God will then once again turn his attention back to Israel, the nation of Israel, for seven more years. That's what the 70th week of Daniel is all about. There's another week of years, another seven, hanging out there that God has to do business with his own people. That week of years, that seven-year period, is the tribulation period where the church is gone. And God then turns his attention back to Israel. With that said, notice now Jesus begins to prophesy and teach concerning his return. Beginning in verse 25. He says, there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth nations will be in distress, anxious over the roaring of the sea and the surging waves. Notice I put there, humanity will be humbled by creation. Again, folks, we even see that today. And we haven't even got to the rapture in the tribute. You and I think creation's out of whack right now and that the weather's crazy and, and, and people are dying all over the world because of the wacky weather and what's happening in the atmosphere and stuff. Folks, we ain't seen nothing. In fact, from my perspective, we're not going to see the worst of it because we're going to be in heaven. But those who are left during the tribulation... Jesus is saying there's going to be markers or tokens which portend remarkable events. That's what the word signs means in verse 25. 
when he says nations will be in distress, the word distress here means a narrowing, a contracting. It's as if the nations of the world are going to feel like everything that's happening in this world just continues to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze. And even as Christians in the world we live in today, don't you sometimes even feel that already? Like we're just continuing to be squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And how much longer can this go on? It brings about, Jesus says, anxiety. But this word anxious literally means to be at a loss, not knowing which way to turn. That's the condition of the nations, which obviously implies even the leaders and rulers of the nations. They're at a loss. They don't have a clue how to fix what's happening on earth. They don't know how to fix the world's problems and how to deal with it. The world is just going to continue to spiral further and further out of control and be contracted and narrowed more and more and more. People will be fainting, Jesus says, verse 26, from fear. Literally in the Greek language, hyperventilating panic. In other words, the reason they faint is because they literally are so panicked and, and, and have panic attacks that they literally hyperventilate and pass out. Jesus says it's going to be rampant. It's, it's on the earth now. People are suffering from fear and anxiety like never before now. We are a world on even prescription medication for anxiety. And Jesus says, it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. They're going to be fainting from fear and from the expectation of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken Then they will see the Son of Man arriving in a cloud with power and great glory. So notice there in the notes, after I put humanity will be humbled by creation, then I put humanity will be gripped by fear and anxiety. But notice, Jesus' second coming will be in stark contrast to His first. Again, this is what separates the second coming of Christ from the rapture, and also from His first coming. In His first coming to earth as a baby in Bethlehem, He came in great humility. He came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. But when He leaves the glories of heaven this time, at the end of the tribulation period, oh my friends, He's coming in power and great glory. And there is no one or nothing that's going to stop Him. In fact, the words great glory here speak of His splendor, His brightness, the most exalted state. The highest position in all the universe. Paul talked about that. That because of His obedience, God the Father raised Him and gave Him a name which is above every name. So that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He has the most exalted place in the universe. And everyone's going to see that. When they crucified him 2,000 some years ago, they didn't think he was anything. They obviously didn't think he was God. They didn't even think he was a prophet. They thought he was a madman and a blasphemer. But when he comes the second time, all will know he's the King of glory. And Jesus says, when these things begin to happen, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. 
The word redemption, don't forget, folks, means our release, our deliverance, our liberation. Again, we've already been released and delivered and liberated because we went up in the rapture, if you know the Lord. But for all those who came to Christ during the tribulation, this is who Jesus is talking about here in this specific context. And he's saying, folks, when you see this, your liberation is very, very near as well. Then he told them a parable. Verse 29, he said, look at the fig tree and all the other trees. By the way, the fig tree always symbolizes Israel in the Bible. When they sprout leaves, you see for yourselves and know that summer is now near. So also, you know, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. And this verse has really caused a lot of confusion over the years. I think from studying this passage that clearly what Jesus is simply saying is when you see these things that I've just talked about, when you see these signs, this generation that's alive, when you see all this, will not die until it's all fulfilled. In other words, this generation is going to, it's going to all happen, if you will, within one generation. It's not going to be drug out. Jesus even said in another place, if God did not shorten those days, no man would be able to, to live. And then I love this in verse 33. One of the most, I think, important things Jesus ever said. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Notice I put there in the notes that certain specific signs will be given to this generation to hold on until Jesus comes. It's not long. But then right under that E, Jesus offers strong assurance concerning his word. And here's what Jesus is teaching. He says, more sure than heaven and earth is my word. And, and what he's saying is my word more than anything else has eternal impact. In other words, what I say matters for eternity. And therefore, it should be of great value. If we measure value by how long something lasts, <laughs> then Jesus' words should be valued and of worth more than anything because His words will always be. They have eternal worth, eternal value, and eternal impact which really then calls us to really make sure that we are valuing what Jesus has said. That we're studying it, that we're reading it, that we're becoming students of the Word of God. If, if, if heaven and earth aren't going to last, but Jesus' words are going to last throughout eternity, then that's something to focus on. And also to be assured of and have stability in my life. Other things aren't going to last. Jesus' words will last. And then at the very end of this great chapter, Jesus calls his followers once again to stay focused and be strong. Notice what he says in verse 34, but be on your guard. These words in the Greek language mean to bring a ship to land. It was a nautical term. It, it was the picture of, of a, a captain of a ship fighting all the forces 
and, and navigating even sometimes the rocks and all of that and making sure that they got the ship to land safely. Jesus says, you and I need to have that kind of, of mindset. We need to have that kind of devoted thought and effort when it comes to our navigating our own lives through the treacherous waters of the days in which we live in. Whether he's talking to his followers before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, whether he's talking to people uh, who are living at the tribulation, or he's talking to us in other passages about the same thing living in the days before the rapture of the church. The principles are the same. It's only going to be through devoted thought and effort that you and I can sh- safely navigate our lives through all the pitfalls and make sure that we land safely until Jesus comes. So he says, be on your guard so that your hearts are not weighed down. Wow. That's a description of the world today. People's hearts are weighed down. And you can see it by the way they carry themselves. You can see it by the way they walk down the street. You can see it by the way they just... Their posture. You can see it by the way they just live life every day. They are weighed down. And then Jesus ties something very interesting here when He says, they're weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Now Jesus... Jesus isn't saying, I'm just talking about drunks here. Notice the context and notice the deeper teaching here. The dissipation and drunkenness comes from people trying to escape and cope with life. Because notice what it's hooked to. And the worries of this life. In other words, the dissipation and drunkenness is because people are trying to escape. People are trying to cope. And, and instead of surrendering to Jesus Christ and finding their peace and rest in Him, like Nicole was talking about tonight, they try to find other coping mechanisms or ways of escape that, get this now, only weigh them down further because now they brought something destructive into their life to try to escape from what life is, and that only adds to the weight of it. It doesn't help them. It doesn't liberate them. It doesn't release them. It doesn't deliver them. It only adds another burden and weight to their life. Again, Jesus is describing the world today. And He says, that day could close down upon you suddenly like a trap. It's a very apt description. For in verse 35, he says, it will overtake all who live on the face of the whole earth. By the way, the word overtake means to entangle. It it is back to that trap idea in the Greek language. It literally was a a, a term of hunters using and baiting a trap and setting it and then being caught in something and entangled in something, prey being entangled. Jesus said that's exactly what people are going to be like. They're going to get entangled in all this stuff. And that's why then in verse 36, he says, stay alert at all times. The words mean to pay close and careful attention to our lives, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that must happen. The word strength here means to prevail, to overcome. And and here's what I, I I want you to see tonight. 
The escape that Jesus is talking about isn't the same kind of escape that the people are looking for in verse 34 by the dissipation and drunkenness. Because this word escape in the Greek language means to be safe and secure during these things that must happen. So don't miss what Jesus is teaching here. The escape of God isn't to pull people of God out of something. It's to give them the strength and the stability and the security to navigate through what they're going to have to go through. That's the escape. That's why many people misinterpret 1 Corinthians 10.13 when they'll quote it and say, man, I'm going through such hard times, but, but the Bible says God will never give us more than we can bear, and I think I'm going through more than I can bear. No, that's not what that verse is teaching. What the verse is teaching us is that God will give you all that you need to get through whatever you're going through, not to escape it. The world wants to escape life and all that's going to happen on the earth, and they do it in all these destructive ways. God is saying, I'll give you my escape. My escape is Jesus Christ. He's the hiding place. He's the refuge. You fall on your knees before Him. You envelop your life in Him. And everything that happens in this world isn't going to touch you if you're in Jesus Christ. And you'll get through it without one hair of your head perishing. Think of the three Hebrew children in the furnace of Nebuchadnezzar. God didn't prevent them from going through the fire. He saved them through the fire. And he says, so that you may have strength to escape these things that must happen and to stand before the Son of Man. Notice, I put there in the notes, Jesus calls his followers to stay focused and be strong. And then finally, verses 37 and 38, I love this. So every day, Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, explaining the scriptures. Jesus had a great teaching ministry. Jesus did more teaching than anything. He loved to explain the Scriptures. But then notice what he did at night. At night, he went and stayed on the Mount of Olives. And if I have a hunch, he was probably praying. So Jesus would do a lot. He would get alone with his Father, and he would just be in his presence, and he would talk to the Father. So notice, the Word of God and prayer. The Word of God and prayer. The Word of God and prayer. That was Jesus' life. The Word of God and prayer. And all the people came to Him early in the morning to listen to Him in the temple courts. So I put there in the notes, we must listen to Jesus always. Folks, if heaven and earth one day is going to pass away, but Jesus' words will never pass away, if they have eternal impact and value, then all the more reason why you and I need to listen to Jesus always. Always. Jesus even said, if you hear these sayings of mine and you apply them to your life, you'll be like the person who built his life on a rock. A rock. Folks, we need Christians to get on the rock. There are too many even Christians who are being swept away by the character, conditions, and circumstances of what's going on in the world. The world is getting the best of Christians. And Jesus said to his followers, 
in every age of history, whether it was the Jews before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, whether it was the people during the tribulation time, or whether it's us in the church age before the rapture of the church, it was never about escaping us from what's going to happen on the earth. It's from making us strong enough to rise up and be witnesses and give a testimony even in the harshest of circumstances. We're always looking for the easy way. And Jesus is looking to make us stronger so that we can stand up to the demands that life is going to bring. And the way we get stronger is to be in the presence of God, to worship, to read His Word, to study His Word, to meditate on His Word, and to pray. The way we get stronger is to fellowship with godly believers and to mutually encourage each other and look out for each other and care for one another. That's the way we get stronger. Jesus expects us to stay focused and be strong. Let's do it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these reminders from the lips of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the reassurance that you give us that heaven and earth will pass away one day, but your words never will. That, Lord, a billion years from now, ten billion years from now, your word will mean as much then as it does now. God, your word is so sure, so reliable, so dependable that, Lord, we can not only stake our life on it, we can stake our eternal destiny on it. We can stake everything on it. Your word is so strong and so sure that, Lord, it can hold us up in the midst of unbelievable circumstances. There is nothing stronger than your word. So, God, I pray that we will truly commit to being a people of your word. May we get stronger for the days that are coming upon this earth so that we can be a testimony and a witness for you. Even in the darkness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for being here. We'll see you on Sunday.